turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us, as always. Appreciate it. Follow the show at danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts of the program. You can also... Do the same at Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we begin on today's program by discussing the uh, substantial developments in the Michael Flynn case uh, and the unmasking of Michael Flynn specifically uh, per a uh, scoop that Catherine Herridge, formerly of Fox, now CBS News, obtained yesterday. The uh, names that have been declassified by acting DNI Richard Grinnell of those involved in unmasking Michael Flynn, those Obama administration officials. And and it's probably a shorter list to tick off who was not involved in the Obama administration in unmasking Flynn, as was reported, a 30, uh, 39 separate uh, separate officials snooped on Flynn's conversations with foreign actors lodging nearly 50 unmasking demands between November 30th of 2016 and January 12th of 2017. Uh, There is a suggestion that uh, maybe a dozen or so names redacted on the list are likely intelligence types who may have a legitimate interest in knowing who their foreign targets were speaking to in the United States. But most of the rest are partisan officials, some of whose names you know, some who you may vaguely remember. White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury, Jacob Liu, Ambassador to the U.N. and Obama confidant, Samantha Power. And then it gets interesting. Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Biden, Biden. So it doesn't seem like Biden's answers earlier this week uh, in his uh, interview with George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America are going to quite hold up. So what did you know about those moves to investigate uh, Michael Flynn? And was there anything improper done? I know nothing about those moves to investigate Michael Flynn, number one. Number two. Number one, he knows nothing about those moves to investigate Michael Flynn. He mentioned. Uh, and do you know anything about the investigation? I know nothing about the investigation. Then 60 seconds later. I do want to press that. You say you didn't know anything about it, but you were reported to be at a January 5th, 2017 meeting where you and the president were briefed on the FBI's plan to question Michael, Michael Flynn over those uh, conversations he had with the Russian ambassador Kislyak. Now, I thought you asked me whether or not I had anything to do with him being prosecuted. OK, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, and now we find out on January 12th of 2017, Vice President of the United States, Joseph Biden, Joseph R. Biden, per the documents Heritage obtained that have been declassified, uh, made an unmasking request. Now, uh, I think it's, there's some reaction that's instructive here, beginning with Rand Paul, who uh, took this information and ran with it yesterday. 
about its importance. And see, these rumors have been going around for years that the President Obama's administration was abusing this power of unmasking, and this sounds like they were abusing it to go after a political opponent, which I think is a very serious offense and should be investigated. And the fact that President, Vice President Biden is directly involved with unmasking a political opponent, think about it. Do you remember we went through this thing called impeachment? They said the President Trump was using the government to go after a political opponent. This is Vice President Biden using the spying powers of the United States to go after a political opponent. He's caught red-handed here. Vice President Biden's caught red-handed eavesdropping on a political opponent's phone calls. That, to me, is alarming. Uh, the response for Flax, uh, from, for Fla- uh, from Flax for Joe Biden, that is, is uh, to say, uh, Rand Paul, President Trump, at all, you're rubber and or I said, I'm rubber and you're glue. Eric Holder on MSNBC. The defensive to the offensive, that they will use the power of the Justice Department, the power of the criminal justice system to go after people who are perceived as enemies of this uh, of this president. That is something that yeah. I say <laughs> reluctantly, but I think based on the record that we have seen, um, they are up to doing that, to use the system in, in that way, which would be unprecedented. So uh, Rand Paul says what we have here is evidence that uh, the apparatuses of the state were being used to target political opponents. And the response from Mr. Fast and Furious, Eric Holder, is to say, uh, I know you are, but what am I? That's one of the responses from the left. The other is Chuck Schumer. Instead of doing what they're supposed to do, Senate Republicans, coming up with answers to the COVID crisis, having oversight hearings to find out why small business isn't getting the lending, why we're not testing, why the hospitals are still hurting uh, and and not getting the money that they need. Instead of having hearings and oversight on that, they're coming up with these ridiculous conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theory? or uh, nothing theoretical about the conspiracy that was afoot in the uh, transitionary period between the Obama and Trump administrations. To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly, who is a senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dan, why are you so cynical? This is all routine. All routine. I mean, all That's another routine. another one of the uh, lines of uh, defense from the left. Right. Unmasking is just customary business uh, in intelligence circles. Not a big deal. Boy, that Eric Holder clip is some kind of projection, isn't it? They are really terrified about what Bill Barr and John Durham, the U.S. attorney tasked with investigating the uh, Obama Justice Department. They're really terrified what he's going to come up with. That's what it sounds like. And with respect to uh, the unmasking, I mean, it just demands uh, 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 more questions of Joe Biden and the others on the list. I mean, specifically, there are legitimate bases for unmasking and there's a protocol in the Foreign Surveillance uh, uh, Intelligence Act. But um, we now we need to know what the basis was in order to to judge whether or not it comports with the protocols and also we know that leaking classified information is a felony. And so that's still a matter that's unresolved and pending the Durham investigation report. Right. And I think, Dan, that is the big point is that um, the unmasking, I'm not sure what the criminality really would be. It's just obviously out of bounds. And a lot of people deny that it happened. And now we know that it did. The problem is that leaking classified government 
information, which we know the Obama officials did to the Washington Post, I think it's important to point out that the Joe Biden unmasking request happened the very same day that David Ignatius at the Washington Post first leaked information about Flynn's call with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. That was January 12, 2017. Whoever leaked that to David Ignatius committed a felony. Whoever leaked details of that conversation to other Washington Post reporters in February also committed a felony. We still don't know who those people are. And so that is what we're hoping to find out, and I'm sure that John Durham is looking at uh, right now. And uh, federal judge Emmett Sullivan is sort of helping to muddy the waters by uh, not accepting uh, the decision by the Department of Justice to drop charges against Michael Flynn by suggesting uh, Michael Flynn could be held in contempt of court and otherwise enlisting a colleague of his, a retired judge, who has been critical of the handling of this case by Department of Justice uh, to uh, make the case that the federal government shouldn't be dropping these charges in an sort of rare amicus uh, briefing session before Judge Sullivan. Sort of a remarkable turn of events uh, with respect to the uh, the Flynn case that we thought was going to be uh, all wrapped up. It really is. And, um, what, you know, Mike Flynn, in a way, is kind of the sacrificial lamb for all of us to get a full glimpse of how corrupt and corroded Washington, D.C. is, how tightly federal judges who are supposed to be objective arbiters of, of justice are not. They're as tied in to the bi-party ruling uh, class in Washington, D.C., as any lobbyist or lawmaker possibly could be. So now we have, and and the person that he tasked with now, you know, I guess trying to re-prosecute Mike Flynn, wrote an editorial in the Washington Post just a few days ago suggesting that this very thing should happen. And this is what Emmett Sullivan did. Even though both parties are trying to drop the case, the judge, Emmett Sullivan, is not allowing that to happen, now wants John Gleason to look at this case and possibly charge, I don't know how they would do this, charge Mike Flynn with perjury. In the, uh, I guess, in, in, inside the Beltway, you, Washington Post op-ed pages have more presidential value than Supreme Court decisions, but uh, uh, it is a remarkable turn of events. I want to pick up when we come back on this very point you're making about uh, sort of the institutional corrosion that has occurred in D.C. Dan Henninger wrote uh, persuasively about it in the Wall Street Journal yesterday as well. More with Julie Kelly. She is a uh, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show president trump in his uh, sit down with fox businesses maria bartiroma this morning had this to say about the swamp in the context of all that we were just discussing about the Flynn prosecution slash persecution slash unmasking. I always say drain the swamp. Nobody knew the swamp was that deep or that that bad. And he just goes through the rogues gallery of swamp creatures. Uh, Dan Henninger writing in the Wall Street Journal. 
about this makes some really good points. The whole process from Flynn in early 2017, sort of wandering in and out of the news, as Henninger describes it. He describes what looked like as a a low-grade mistake by Flynn got built into a high-stakes prosecution with special counsel Robert Mueller's lawyers pressuring him and family with financial ruin unless he took a plea and helped them fry a bigger fish in a beltway-wide project. Donald Trump and Russian collusion goes on to um, the IG reports and Comey's uh, use of the Steele dossier for illicit uh, uh, targeting of Carter Page, among others. He uh, writes, does Henninger, it's been quite a display of raw institutional firepower by the Beltway's best and brightest. One may ask, what didn't they know about the rule of law and when did they stop knowing it? He goes on to say the deeper reason for these excesses is that the people who administer the American system lost faith in the American system. So they debauched the institutions uh, they were uh, charged with protecting for all of us. Uh, I thought that was a really good point. Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, who's back with us. Really important point. With Trump's election, they lost faith in the American system. So the rule of law was out and the ends justify the means was in and they debauched the institutions. They were charged with protecting for us, the American citizen. That's right. But who really ultimately, Dan, was responsible for debauching these institutions? That is Barack Obama. I mean, this is, we know, being in Chicago, this is how the game is played. He leveraged every institution from the IRS to the EPA. Now we know the Justice Department, the CIA, a secret court to go after his political enemies. Michael Flynn was one of them because, of course, he used to work for Barack Obama and James Clapper. Um, And so, you know, that he just brought that style to Washington, D.C., and there's a long history also of him spying on reporters. I mean, this is nothing new. And so he found the right people to do it. James Comey, John Brennan, James Clapper, Andrew McCabe, people hostile to the rule of law, even as they pretended uh, devotion to it. And so they were happy to play along with Barack Obama and Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch and and that entire cabal of really, truly America-hating partisans and using any weaponry they had against Donald Trump, his supporters, his associates, Republican congressmen like Devin Nunes, who got in their way. And so we're finally seeing how this is unfolding, and we see them panicking. And now we see Barack Obama leaking a tape of him talking about the Flynn case and his worries about the rule of law. It's a joke. Oh, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, that's it's really instructive to maintain some institutional knowledge here because uh, so much happens on a daily basis. Just Friday with that uh, phone call that was leaked, quote unquote, <laughs> with the time codes prepared <laughs> nicely. So Isikoff didn't have to do any cutting. Here's the thing about that, right? It shows you how they operate. So this is preemptive damage control because they know how this is going to flow. They know what's coming down the pike. And what's coming down the pike was the Catherine Herridge reveal per the Grenell declassification yesterday. That's exactly right. It's preemptive damage control. You saw what Eric Holder just said. It's preemptive damage control to make it look like the Justice Department is going after the Obama people because they know that indictments are forthcoming. And so that's part of it. It's good to see that they are panicked and to have Obama kind of dip his toe in now to uh, and kind of signal to Judge Sullivan, who went along with what he said, and to have all of his minions in the media follow along. Um, This is 
this is really coming to a head, and I hope quick enough before the election because we don't want time to run out um, and, and lose control of what's happening with this, these various investigations. And we we're talking about the institutions that these chieftains were in charge of protecting for the American people, the FBI, the CIA, the other intelligence agencies, the federal government generally. Uh, also, the institution of the media. Britt Hume on Fox News calling the media's coverage of this uh, entire saga from Michael Flynn to present. Michael, you know, the initial uh, 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 Michael Flynn uh, prosecution to present. The worst that he's seen in 50 years. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that it is, Dan. And I think a big problem is that we still do not have I don't think Americans have a full grasp of the connection between the institutions that you're talking about and the media, how they rely on each other. I mean, we saw kind of the FBI report that Michael Horowitz did that saw FBI, FBI agents taking tickets and going out to dinner with reporters and getting free uh, tickets to sporting events. And no, but nobody was identified, right? So we don't know the names of the people who are involved. And until we start seeing people charged with illegally leaking this felonious behavior um, from the institutions leaking to the media, they are complicit in what we're seeing, the destruction of these institutions, the destruction of trust it really will have long-term consequences. I mean, how how much credibility does the FBI have right now in bringing cases? I mean, you, you hear, you're hearing bugs that people are saying, we're not even going to meet with the FBI. We can't, we can't trust them. Um, we can't trust the Department of Justice. And, you know, it, this has counted kind of downstream consequences as well. And so what these people have done um, really is, should be alarming to every American, whether you're Democrat, Republican, you support Trump or not. If they can go after Donald Trump and Mike Flynn, a three-star general, imagine what they can do to more powerless Americans who get in their way. And, and just uh, systemically, the importance, as uh, Dan Henninger concludes his piece, uh, as to the inconsolable haters of the 45th president, keep hating if you want. That's anyone's right. But think about rejoining the system that protected the individual rights of every American before this presidency and will do so after he's gone. He puts a period at the end of the statement. I think it's a question mark right now, and that's that's the concern. It really is, Uh, and I think it's going to get a lot worse because people who have kind of not paid that much attention because they have real lives and other jobs um, to what has been going down, once we see what John Durham hopefully is going to reveal in the next several months about or a few months about what Comey, Brennan, the Justice Department did um, to the Trump campaign. And keep in mind, and Trump makes this point, it's not just Trump. It's about the, you know, 63 million voters who voted to elect him. And what they did, and Molly Hemingway has pointed this out, Dan, you probably saw that. They attempted to thwart the peaceful transition of power, which we've prided ourselves on for more than two centuries. That is what Obama and his people attempted to do from the day after Trump was elected until they're still trying to do it right now. And so that is something that we, we just can't stand for. And that's why we all have to keep speaking out and reporting on it and, and getting people aware of it, because it's a real danger to the country. And that's not an exaggeration. She is Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Let's hear from the-
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Thank goodness Milton and Rose Friedman set up a foundation so that uh, scholarship of the quality that they produce could continue beyond their time on this planet. Friedman Foundation, notably located in Indiana. Hmm, another reason to move to the Hoosier State. The uh, Friedman Foundation there producing um, some good data for consideration on school openings as well as on lockdown and bust policies. And I know we're not supposed to be concerned with anything private sector related because the only thing of concern with respect to the response to this pandemic and how, is, how it affects the public sector, where the public sector is affected. I'm not talking about salaries and benefits. I'm not talking about public schools ultimately reopening or worrying about public school finances. No, no, no. Don't worry about that. You know, making up lost revenues and all. That's the, I know we're only supposed to be concerned about public sector. The productive sector is, uh, you know, an afterthought. Like so much of what we talk about, all of these things are intertwined. These uh, systems don't exist in silos. And there's a really good uh, piece study that was done by Robert Enlow over at the Friedman Foundation on the impact of people being out of work, perhaps not being able to continue sending their child or children to private school because they can't afford the tuition. And so they have to send their children back to public school or to public school for the first time. And that increases the cost of operating the public school. One of the little known facts or at least little discussed facts is that private school is public sector friendly because it offloads 10 percent of the student population onto private hands and off of the government's dime. Right. Well, when you destroy uh, the economic livelihoods of 30 million people, that's going to have an impact on all sorts of private institutions. We focus a lot on businesses. How about private schools and not just at the collegiate level? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Enlow, president and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on your show today. It's a big topic we should be discussing. Absolutely. And so uh, walk us through some of the number crunching you did and, and what the top line result of that number crunching is. Well, I mean, here are the top lines. First of all, this crisis has put so many people out of work, regardless of, of whether it's true, we should do it or not. The fact is so many people out of work and so many families who are middle income who struggled to put their kids in a school that works for them, a private school, uh, just won't be able to afford it anymore. And so what does that mean to our state budgets? I mean, in, in all of our discussion about how much money we need now from the federal government and from our states to fund the public schools, no one's realizing that all the kids that have been in private school where families have been paying on their own are going to come back migrating to the public sector. Nationally, we know that just 10% of the kids in private school currently migrate back to public schools. That's going to cost the entire country uh, and state and local budgets $6.7 billion. Imagine if 30% migrate nationally. That's about $20 billion. Illinois is just as bad. In fact, it's one of the, as you might imagine, worst. If 10% of the kids in Illinois private schools right now uh, migrate back to public schools next year or when public schools open, that's $352 million more the state's got to find. If 30% come back, that's over a billion. 
Let's put this in perspective. In 2008, in Chicago and other big urban areas, 40% of the kids migrated back to public schools. So this is a huge fiscal cliff that you face that's frankly taller than Mount Everest. And uh, with respect to uh, thinking about this, too, because I've seen projections uh, with just respect to Catholic schools that uh, as many as 30 percent of Catholic private schools may close. I mean, so thinking about thinking about that, I mean, it's just it's horrific on so many levels. Um, But also who is impacted? One of the things that happens too, uh, even for the schools that stay open, a lot of Catholic schools, other private schools have lower income students on scholarship. Well, if you're not getting full tuition from those who do have the ability to pay, then how does that impact your ability to provide scholarships for lower income individuals? And thus, how is it does it uh, impact the ability of people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale to have the educational choice that people that are wealthier have? Well, that's exactly right. And people mistake and think private schools, particularly Catholic schools, and our numbers are uh, nationally right now in the first two months of the crisis, uh, we're estimating about 40 schools are closed per month. Right. So that's a lot of schools closed in the first two months. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, we've got verified and unverified estimates. And that's a lot of schools that are just going to be out of service for kids and low income kids. And people don't realize that Catholic schools in particular have a mission and heart for low income kids, and they won't be able to serve them uh, nearly as much as they did last year. When we come back with Robert Enlow, president and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, I want to talk about the advances school choice has made over the last couple of decades and whether or not school choice will be retreating in the future after the pandemic. More with Robert Enlow next. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Robert Enlow, president and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. And, and Robert, you know, this is such a tragic story because there has been so much to advance school choice over the last 20 years in particular. I mean, I, I Milton Friedman was talking about this in the 50s, of course, but finally the, the arguments he was making started to take hold around the country. I mean, even in a place like Illinois, for goodness sakes, with the Opportunity Scholarship Program here. And you wonder if now all of that progress will be clawed back because of the financial distress private schools are under. How how do you handicap that? This is certainly a risk that we face. So Illinois has this great program called the Invested Kids Program that allows middle and low income families to go to private schools through a scholarship tax credit. There are currently 7,100 kids in that program, right? 7,100 middle to low income families that are being able to get a choice for their kids. Just think if they close that program down, which you can see the public school establishment doing, Closing that program down would actually cost the state money. What we found in another study we did was that Illinois public dollars, you'd have to spend an additional $71 million to put those kids back in school. Program costs about 46. The total cost for those in public schools, 110 million. The difference is around 71 million. That would be the additional amount of money. So no matter how you slice it, even if they claw back these programs, which is something they're gonna do and they're gonna try to do, these kids are going to cost the state a lot of money. And, and your state in particular, as you know, is quite challenged financially. It's such a critical point because, uh, you know, the, the argument against by those who made it at the time 
the uh, creation of the scholarship program that you're talking about, which is completely voluntarily funded, was uh, you're taking money from the public schools. The argument for private schools is always you're taking money from the public schools. That's the argument against every school choice program. And in point of fact, you document, as you were describing, that it's 180 degrees the other way, that it's that you're actually saving taxpayer dollars by offloading kids into private school environments. That's exactly right. And, it, and I, that argument, Dan, frustrates me more than anything, because if that's true, that, pub, that a program like this takes money away from public schools, then any child who moves from one public school district to another has taken money from a public school. Because guess what happens when you move districts? Your money goes with you. So the biggest uh, uh, people who, who are guilty of taking money from public schools are other public school districts. Right? It's such a frustrating point because it's just rhetoric and it's not based in fact. And, and the reality is, is that if you're going to be able to educate kids at a higher rate for a lower amount of money, which you can do typically in the private schools, and the property taxes are left back into the public school system, there's just no way school choice can cost a dime. What insights do you have about a potential reopening of Catholic schools, particularly as as many states are reopening now? I mean, it would seem to me, per some of the dire projections we were discussing just a minute ago, that, uh, boy, we've got to get Catholic schools and private schools open straight away or they may never open again. I think we're going to have a situation where if we don't rethink education, and that includes private education, right? We're going to see an absolute chaotic problem in not only our Catholic schools, but our other independent schools and our traditional schools. You know, parents' number one concern, we did a poll about what their concerns are. Their number one concern is that their kid's going to go to school and get exposed to coronavirus, right? They are so worried that their kids are missing instruction time, but if they go back to school, they're going to, they're going to get this disease. And so you're going to see school districts start saying, well, we're not opening the same way in the fall. In fact, one school district in West Virginia has already said, well, we're going entirely virtual this fall. Now, that's ironic since public school districts generally hate virtual schooling, uh, but now they <laughs> seem to love it in some cases, right? Because they're the ones providing the virtual schooling, right? No, I mean, it's you know, it's a great point. There's sort of the, well, of course, the, the shifting sands, right? They oppose the creation of virtual schools as part of a competitive environment for K-12 education. Now they're embracing it for their own system. No, and it's, I hadn't quite <laughs> thought about that. That is really excellent. I mean, it just shows how the folly of these centrally planned school systems and, frankly, their cravenness. And I know, you know, we're always uh, a little bit concerned about getting into other people's motives. Uh, so we don't. We just look at their behavior and the behavior of those who are opposed to these school choice programs in Illinois, but across the country. I mean, including in Indiana, that has one of the most aggressive school choice programs in the country, thankfully, and thankfully for those families in Indiana. The basis for them is completely without merit. So it's a scam is what it is. If you are arguing something you know to be untrue and the data suggests it and it's widely available so you know it or you should know it, I don't know what you call that other than a scam. Yeah, and, and our purpose of EdChoice and the formerly the Freedom Foundation is to provide that kind of information so that people can see for themselves, so that the ideas that we have lying around right now to show how we can rethink case of education. We, and we have to rethink it. We have to base it on mastery, how much kids know, not how many days they're in a seat, or what kids are doing, not where they're doing it. These are things that are going to have to change, and they are changing. And what's interesting is I think parents in private schools have risen to the challenge, right? So in our polling that we did, we asked parents whether they feel prepared. Are they prepared to uh, 
handle this thing. And surprisingly, you might say, most of them felt more prepared to handle homeschool, the homeschooling environment they're in than you would have thought they were, right? So parents are stepping up to the table, right? Even if they don't want to, they are. And so I think that's interesting. So we, our school-age parents said that they were 71% are, are somewhat or very prepared for this online learning and school closes. You know what the number was for teachers when we surveyed them? 67%. Hmm. So te- parents felt more prepared than teachers did for this online learning. And in fact, in private schooling, our data has found that while barely half of the private schools actually did any online learning uh, at all, now fully 88% of them have a full online digital curriculum. What about uh, teachers, uh, Catholic school, private school teachers, as in, in terms of returning to work as part of a uh, you know, phased in or or full on reopening with certain new protocols. You know, that's going to be a challenge that I, I don't think we've even come anywhere near deciding yet and how that's going to happen. Right. So I think, you know, Catholic schools face the same issues that public schools face. You know, uh, now I will tell you on the positive side, it is true that private schools typically have uh, lower class sizes right, than traditional public schools. And so as a result of that, they're certainly going to be able to do social distancing better and faster. I mean, this is a huge issue that we face, and if we don't rethink, we don't rethink it uh, right now. We're going to have not only lose our private school sector, we're going to probably lose a generation of kids or another generation of kids to lack of education. Add on top of that the fact that your state and nationally can't afford it. Well, I think there's a real problem out there, and I'm, this is not even to mention Dan your pension cliff problem. Yeah, right? if you have a we wish you wouldn't now or yeah yeah right yeah. yeah. We, yeah, we wish we wouldn't mention our pension problem. No, I mean, that's the uh, attitude that we've taken. Problems just solve themselves, and they don't. Robert Enlow, president and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, James. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I guess CNN didn't get their PPP money. How else to explain, including Greta Thunberg on a panel tonight, town hall, pandemic town hall, which includes Dr. Sanjay Gupta, former CDC uh, uh, director Richard Besser, and former HHS secretary Kathleen Sebelius, along with 17-year-old Greta Thunberg. There's your panel discussion. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, those other individuals just are not particularly um, compelling enough in the fear department. Uh, obviously, you're talking about um, the uh, future Al Gore chair of fear studies at Harvard University. How dare you? Well, I'm sorry, but I just think that's probably what's going to come to pass. Uh, Greta. Um, so it's it's interesting, the reaction to it, people just uh, lampooning CNN. What does Greta Thunberg have to offer in terms of particular insight? It's not any insight, of course. It's just uh, the fact that she will uh, generate attention. Uh, and frankly, just even including her and getting all the blowback that it, uh, CNN is getting you know, adds to the cachet for the event. Now you want to see Greta Thunberg interact with Dr. Sanjay Gupta and former CDC director Besser and HHX secretary and watch also the adults genuflect before 
young Greta the same way they do when she goes to scold people at uh, international governmental conferences, right? Uh, it's just remarkable. It really is remarkable where we're at. The uh, fear-mongering as a, uh, a f- teenagers fear-mongering adults as the means to have to facilitate a discussion about uh, the response to a pandemic. Um, I'm sure Anderson Cooper, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt's kid, will handle it with the aplomb and dignity that uh, has become his calling card. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Ian Bremmer, uh, not exactly a uh, uh, card-carrying member of the conservative movement, uh, re- reacted by saying, I'm confused. Yeah. There's some serious people on the left who um, don't buy into so much of this hysteria, whether it's in the whether it's on the topic of climate change or on the topic of the covid-19 threat and response. But um, they are quickly drowned out by the attention. Their erstwhile employers like CNN give to. The fear mongers like Greta. And also what you'll see is the continued exploitation of this teenager. As I've said from the outset with respect to Greta and all the people, how dare you attack a young girl? Not attacking Greta Thunberg. I'm attacking how she's being used as a mascot for some very craven and dishonest people. And so that persists tonight on CNN. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. The uh, secondary effects of the COVID-19 response, uh, we've talked a, a good bit about it. There was a good piece in the Wall Street Journal this week from uh, Dr. Jeff LeBenger and uh, a colleague of his, Mike Meyer, about uh, medical lockdowns causing disease surges. We were talking a lot about how few patients are coming to get their chemo, to get uh, treatment for heart ailments and other serious diabetes, other serious diseases, as it uh, pertains to kind of year-over-year comparisons where there have been significant uh, COVID-19 outbreaks, New York City, for example. Um, that's a, been discussed somewhat, but I don't know that it's given been given the uh, profile that it deserves because there's so much interest in making this a lives versus dollars conversation rather than what it's always been, which is a lives versus lives conversation in terms of trying to achieve some balance. And also, ironically, right, flatten the curve to protect the uh, viability of our health care infrastructure in this country and by repurposing all or so much of the infrastructure strictly for COVID-19 and eliminating elect, quote-unquote elective surgeries for so long, have you blown a hole in the economic model, the business model for so many healthcare centers, 
and resulted in actually weakening our health care infrastructure when the whole point of flatten the curve was to protect the strength of the health care infrastructure. Uh, it is a curious, confusing, often frustrating times. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Dr. Jeff LeBenger. He's the CEO of Summit Medical Group, uh, City MD, and uh, Mike Meyer, who's the president of Meyer Consulting and founder of CCX Cancer Summit. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Well, uh, give us a perspective on on medical lockdowns and how they exacerbate disease surges, uh, maybe even foment disease surges. This is Jeff, Summit City MD. We see about 6 million visits in the New York metropolitan area per year. In our integrated model, where we have our own ASCs, where we take care of patients with cancer and other acute illness, we have locked down our ASCs for the past six weeks that has put off, you know, some surgeries that need to be done and some screenings that need to be done in the area. Patients are very worried and they don't want to come in to see the doctor because they're afraid of contracting COVID-19. Although we screen everybody coming in and everybody coming into our ASC, we do a viral PCR testing on to make sure they don't have the virus and they're safe. But still, patients are worried. They're scared to come in to see their doctor, and they are putting off care that will be a detriment to the healthcare system in the near future. This goes down to children, too, and children's health. There was a story the other day, uh, measles vaccinations down 60%. Yep. Yes. We opened up a little earlier for vaccinations where we screened people coming in because we knew that was going to be a problem on uh, getting vaccinations to children. But, yes, that is an issue also. Going back to New York, uh, Dr. LeBenger, um, since that's the epicenter of the outbreak, uh, so resources from sort of every level were were driven to New York City and New York State, but New York City in particular – what, what, uh, what's your assessment of the, the allocation of resources that were done, particularly after you had those field hospitals set up with the, uh, the ship and at the Javits Center? Uh, was it an opportunity to move COVID patients to those uh, facilities more quickly so as to open up the uh, access uh, to hospitals for these other procedures? You know, it's interesting. It, it's, it, it seems like a wonderful thing to do to move to either Central Park or to the COVID hospital or to the ship that was there. Now, remember, the ship that was in the harbor was there for initially non-COVID, but that never really panned out. Once you're in the hospital and you're on these vents, and these are really sick patients, they get, you cannot, it's not that easy to move patients out, you know, of an ICU to another institution. And it was just inundated and the time frame the quickness that these patients came in that they compensated. Unfortunately, I don't think you, there was enough time to move them to other venues so you could open up and reallocate sources and hospitals to be able to do that. And remember, this is a very contagious virus, you know, within a hospital and hospitals sort of had been locked down to prevent that. You don't want to bring in a patient for surgery into a hospital that has 60 ICU beds and people walking around in and out, even though they're using PPE, you know, around the hospital, 
you don't want to infect somebody who has cancer or who is going for a surgery right. with COVID. It's not as easy right. as one might think to move patients. Uh, Mike Meyer, going back to the economics, I mean, what's your sense of where, I mean, you talked about individual doctors and practices or, or even groups of doctors and substantial practices. What's your sense of coming out of this or even just as we stand here today is, is our health care infrastructure, is it uh, you know, as strong, stronger, weaker than it was going into uh, the response to this pandemic? I think parts of it are weaker. Um, I was on the phone yesterday with a physician I've known for years who runs a private practice out here in Arizona, very successful um, endoscopy center, very high quality. And, um, you know, his situation is dire. Um, you know, the governor here, and I think this is true in, in Illinois, too. I mean, the governor shut down all elective procedures and uh, his operation is away from the hospital. Um, and so for the last uh, eight weeks, they've done, uh, you know, they've pretty much done nothing. And so if it continues now, again, we're starting to open up here in Arizona. And so, uh, you know, he'll probably weather this storm, but the the economics of it going forward are still really difficult because to go to your point about people being afraid to uh, come in, people shouldn't be afraid to go into places like um, what Jeff is talking about at Summit, which uh, uh, which has very good controls and is um, uh, not inpatient. They shouldn't be afraid to go into physicians' offices, provided that the physicians have taken the appropriate measures. Um, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be thought through here. Um, some of our big hospitals here in, in Arizona, and I think this may be true at Northwestern or Chicago or Advocate, um, you know, you have to walk into the hospital and check into a central registration to go get a basic test. Um, so you have all of these people walking into the hospital to go to various places. Um, people are going to be afraid to do that. Um, and so we have to do some simple things that, that uh, or maybe they're not that simple, but we have to do some things quickly that get people over, you know, this worry. Um, you go out here to certain doctor's offices and everybody's wearing masks and in certain other places, nobody's wearing masks. Um, you know, we know masks don't do much good for, for you, but if everybody were wearing, wearing masks, they could certainly, you know, potentially help everybody else. So it, it uh, uh, I, I just think going back to your economic question that it seems like we've kind of said, all right, we're going to write some big checks and we're just going to throw the money out there rather than kind of saying, okay, where, where should the money go? And um, I personally think a lot more attention should be paid to the, you know, to the physicians. Um, before we uh, let you uh, gentlemen go, I, I know in your piece in the Wall Street Journal, which we'll post, you have a number of recommendations uh, based on what we've experienced. But uh, assuming there is this uh, second wave and we don't know if it's going to be uh, just as vicious or as some are predicting, it will have a second wave. But it'll be less vicious in the fall and the winter. And this will be with us. Uh, one or two things, because that's all most politicians can get their minds around. One or two things that you would recommend in terms of the response the next time once we're out of this and and all the states are in some phase of reopening and then we're facing some this again or even something like this one or two big big takeaways that need to be remembered and thought through this is jeff bender i think one is the federal government has to have better preparedness for something like this happening again two i think that uh, we have to look at healthcare a little differently, and we couldn't have, we didn't have time to get into it, but virtual health and how you take care of patients, you know, over the phone, through a video, how you could handle that and incorporate that into an office to practice, at least now, 
good social distancing, wearing masks when they come to the office. Because remember, I do feel that where an office could have handled 20 people coming in a day, they might have to handle 10 people coming in a day because you have to practice social distancing within that office and individual doctors have to realize that as you move forward so they can bring the digital platform in for follow-ups and things of that nature to help nullify some of this uh, condition. He is Dr. Jeff LeBenger, CEO of Summit Medical Group, CityMD in New York, with Mike Meyer, president of Meyer Consulting and founder of CCX Cancer Summit in Arizona. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Take care. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've talked a lot about the arbitrariness of many of the edicts issued at the state levels by governors. Uh, we've talked somewhat about the unconstitutionality of some of the edicts, not just on the substance, but on the process. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court becomes uh, the first state Supreme Court to uh, inveigh against the process by which an executive order was issued by the governor there. Tony Evers, in a 4-3 decision yesterday, uh, they struck down the shelter-in-place order that Tony Evers had promulgated uh, that was to stay in effect until May 26th. Uh, They struck it down, which effectively lift all restrictions on businesses and gatherings imposed by the order. Uh, And um, uh, They did so by saying something relatively straightforward, you would think, that has become a point of controversy among some. Uh, Here's the uh, from the majority opinion. If a forest fire breaks out, there's no time for debate. Action is needed. The governor could declare an emergency and respond accordingly. But in the case of a pandemic, which lasts month after month, the governor cannot rely on emergency powers indefinitely. Uh, the point is to say uh, you need to include your co-equal legislative branch, just as that co-equal legislative branch has enlisted the co-equal judicial branch to strike down your uh, ignoring of the legislative branch. Uh, uh, And this was somewhat telegraphed by Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley, who during the oral arguments and the questioning a couple of weeks ago, had this to say. My question for you is, where in the Constitution did the people of Wisconsin confer authority on a single unelected cabinet secretary to compel almost 6 million people to stay at home and close their businesses and face imprisonment if they don't comply with no input from the legislature without the consent of the people? Isn't it the very definition of tyranny for one person to order people to be imprisoned for going to work, among other ordinarily lawful activities? Where does the Constitution say that's permissible, counsel? Well, great question. Now, uh, we're talking about unelected, she's not talking about the governor. Obviously, she's talking about the director of the Department of Public Health in the state of Wisconsin, who is the named 
defendant in the suit that was brought by Wisconsin legislative Republicans. Um, but it was, you know, she being the uh, the um, implementation tool for the governor's order, she being the public health director there. Interestingly, too, it just to, to kind of keep score here to some extent, it's noted in this piece about the Wisconsin ruling in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, it, Wisconsin was one of 43 states to be locked down by its governor. As of Wednesday, it was one of 11 with such restrictions. I will add the descriptor draconian, uh, but such restrictions still in place. Right. Uh, a month ago, 43 states. Today, 11 states, places like Illinois and California and New York and Virginia uh, and used to be Wisconsin. Uh, No longer Wisconsin because of a court order. This is an issue that actually is being litigated in Illinois as well. I perhaps have mentioned there's a couple of Republican state legislators on their own who have filed a suit at the. Uh, local level, the state level in Illinois against the governor's order, which extends to the end of May. And there's likely because we don't have uh, such confidence in our judicial branch in Illinois, there's likely to be a federal lawsuit that's filed next week seeking federal action to uh, enjoin the implement the uh, the uh, um, effectiveness of Governor Pritzker's executive order to uh, free businesses and residents the same way the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin freed the businesses and residents of the cheese state. Here's uh, the thing. Uh, One of the reasons why you're seeing more reopening and people moving through their phases with all due speed as information becomes available is because uh, the news has been relatively positive. Think about uh, Georgia and all the heat that Governor Brian Kemp took, including from his own party, including from his erstwhile ally, President Trump. It was an experiment in human sacrifice when Brian Kemp moved to begin reopening Georgia a couple weeks back, right? Well, uh, since May 1, the daily count of confirmed cases and deaths have dropped markedly in Georgia. As of Wednesday, the seven-day moving averages of new cases was down uh, two, was was 242 down from 773 the week prior. So, I mean, cut by a factor of, of three. The seven-day moving average of deaths was 12, down sharply from 34 on April 29th. So the week prior, remember this is since May 1, uh, the, you know, the week ending April 29th, and then uh, since May 1, the count. Hospitalizations also... Uh, declined uh, during that time period, according to the Georgia Management Emergency Management Agency. In addition, even nationally, Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA director, uh, noted in a tweet yesterday, national data from the past week suggests that the U.S. is starting to experience a sustained and sharper decline in new COVID-19 cases after a period of extended plateau plateau and now decline. And he charts this out nicely and compares it to what we've seen in other countries in terms of plateau and decline. Um, So that's good news. And it just calls the question again, uh, why it's sort of the old uh, cliche, why won't you take yes for an answer? 
Why, why won't you take good news for an answer? Why won't you take plateaus and declines for an answer? Why constantly moving the goalposts? How did flatten the curve become find a cure, as others have suggested? And I think it's a, a fair question. Um, what if what are the rolling impacts here? Is there any assessment being done on lives, on economic impacts, uh, on educational outcomes, on the uh, viability of the institutions of a free society, the institutions of civilization, including the platoons of democracy, the voluntary associations, the nonprofits, the art houses. Uh, Why so single-minded? Why so, and by that I mean myopic. Why committed to the tunnel vision? Why is there always, it's good news, but I'm sticking to the decision I made, even though it was based on models that were wrong, projections that haven't materialized, and in point of fact, we're getting good news both in terms of data looking at our community or our state in a silo as well as looking at the data coming from states that are moving through their phases of reopening. Uh, questions that should be asked of the lockdown and bust politicians around the country, whether at the state or local level, and, and frankly, at the congressional level and presidential level, too, on the Democrat side, of course. This is Dan Proft. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump uh, sitting down for an interview with Fox Business's Maria Bartiroma t- uh, today, aired this morning, had this to say about uh, the reopening. Look, the, le- the less successful we are in opening, the better they are probably, maybe, for an election. But I'm letting people know, in many cases, they're doing it just for political purposes. So you think that you they would rather see a recession, a terrible economy, joblessness, than have you get another term? They would rather see our country fail. They would rather see our country fail. And you know what that means, because part of failure is death. They would rather see that than have me get elected. Uh, and uh, you know who the they are. The they is that the president is referencing for more on the topic of reopening uh, the economics of it uh, that inevitably pulled into the politics of it. Pleased to be joined again by our friend Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And as I always mention, because it's such a great blog, Cafe Hayek, a blog contributor, CafeHayek.com. Don, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Happy to be here, Dan. Well, uh, you know, separating the politics for a minute, what the president says about delaying the reopening against the backdrop today of uh, the announcement of another three million Americans filing for first time unemployment benefits. That's 36 million over seven weeks. Uh, And uh, we don't have a handle on how high that number is going to go because every state is doing its own thing. And uh, we also 
don't have a real handle on all of the uh, unforeseen and unintended consequences of the shutdown, even as people are beginning the reopening. That's exactly correct. The, we are in uncharted territories, as I've said before, and politicians normally don't have a handle on things that they meddle in. This time, uh, the, the absence of a handle is of a magnitude much higher than at any time in the past. We are really, really uh, sailing blind here. Uh, and uh, the the way to cure this this blindness, at least partially, is to spend another three trillion dollars, according to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, a uh, trillion uh, for this group, uh, states and localities, a trillion for businesses. And we'll figure out how that's distributed later. A trillion here. Uh, what do you think about uh, the so-called heroes legislation that was introduced by Pelosi? So I don't think I don't think much of it. Again, we don't know a lot, but here's here's what we do know. You don't create wealth merely by handing out money. You actually have to have people going to work, going to factories, driving delivery vehicles, uh, uh, performing the jobs in, in the real economy in order to have wealth, in order to have any of this matter in terms of improving, uh, maintaining or improving the living standards of, of, of ordinary Americans. And as long as the lockdown continues, we won't have that production going on. So Congress can do whatever the hell it wants. And as long as people stay shut, shut in, uh, particularly if they're forced to be shut in by, by government, uh, then all of this is, is at best for naught. At worst, it can result in, in, in inflation and, and uh, unfortunate expectations. Well, and uh, just speaking of inflation, and, and it can also result in uh, catastrophic ironies. Inflation was the initial concern and uh, may very well still be or stagflation uh, going back to Carter era terminology uh, because of certainly because of six trillion dollars over that the Fed. But in addition to that, now you have the concern about deflation because of uh, uh, the oversupply as compared to demand and the uh, spiraling that can occur in a deflationary way. So you have you certainly have some uh, products. I mean, oil is a big one, right? Where the the supply of it is now much higher relative to the traditional demand for it, so its its price is falling. I'm not really worried that much about about deflation. I'm worried more about. I'm not predicting inflation so much. It's a very complicated topic. But I'm if I predict one, it's inflation, and 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 not deflation. And that is again because we're just not producing the quantities of goods and services that we need to produce uh, uh, in, in, in order to keep up with the amount of money that's out there chasing these goods and services. Some goods, yes, the prices will fall. Some goods, the prices have fallen. But overall, I'm worried more about inflation than deflation. When we come back with George Mason University's Don Boudreau, I want to pick up our discussion on inflation versus deflation and the uh, destructiveness of any manifest expression of either Also, uh, get to a piece by Kevin Williamson over at National Review about state aid and his open-mindedness to it if it's tied to something. More with Don Boudreau next.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with George Mason University's Don Boudreaux. And uh, Don, to your point about uh, inflation uh, and mine about deflation, what we find is that uh, significant expressions of either are destructive. Yes. What is destructive is having the government interfere in peaceful relationships because when those peaceful relationships, commercial relationships, productive relationships are interfered with, things don't get produced. People don't get what they need. People don't go to work. They don't get incomes and they don't have places to spend those incomes. Their living standards fall. When we get reopening, to the extent we get reopening, I don't doubt, and to some extent this will be good, people will on their own voluntarily social distance, voluntarily keep you know, their older relatives secluded you know, until the intensity of the virus passes. And I would prefer to rely on these sorts of uh, spontaneous, voluntary, on-the-ground, individual decision-making uh, ways of, of dealing with this virus than the, what we have, we have now, the sort of government on top just imposing a lockdown, which is destructive. Yes, it, it, it may cause destructive inflation. We may get destructive deflation. What we will get is destruction for as long as this lockdown continues in the way that it's going. And, and, and let me say, the people who support, at least the vast majority of people, such as myself, who support opening up, it isn't a choice between, oh, the economy and lives. Lives are being destroyed now by the lockdown. It's my sincere belief, I may be wrong, but it's my sincere belief that the effects on people, real flesh and blood people of the lockdown, health effects, mental effects, economic effects, add up to something far larger than the effects of opening up. Kevin Williamson writing in National Review about state A. This is a hotly debated topic right now because of the concern that many states have that the worst fiscally managed states will use this COVID-19 opportunity as the means to get more money from the federal government, meaning which is from all the states, in order to paper over terrible public policy decisions they had been making for generations prior to COVID-19 outbreak, take advantage of the crisis that the crisis presents. So bailing out unfunded pension systems in places like Illinois, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Kentucky, California, that whereas Wisconsin has a fully funded pension system. And so is that right? And of course, Wisconsin legislators would say, no, it is not. Kevin Williams, writing in National Review, says uh, oh, state aid. OK, I'm open minded on state aid, but it needs to come with states paying off their unfunded liabilities. Uh, that is a, a nice theory. But, for example, Illinois, which I know well, will never, ever, 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 never, 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 ever pay two hundred billion dollars in unfunded pension and health care liabilities back. Even if you gave them two hundred billion dollars, they would just use that as the lever to go back to doing what they were doing that ran up the two hundred billion dollar bill. So that's my view. But Don, state and local aid from the federal government to aid the recovery. So during the crisis, I'm kind of with Kevin Williamson in general. I'm open minded to some state aid, but I agree with you completely about the perverse incentives we have here. You know, I'm a, I'm a college professor, and a lot of times students come up to me and say, you know, professor, I really wasn't studying very well during the semester, and I, I did poorly. Can you help me out here at the end of the semester? And I always say, no, you, you knew of the of the requirements. And, and if, if, if I help, if I give students grades at the end of the semester, bump the grades up, all it's going to do is give them further incentives in the future to be poor students. If the government bails out these states, 
without much thought, is it going to encourage them in the future to continue to be even more fiscally irresponsible as they have been? And you're right. Illinois is right up there at the top with fiscal uh, irresponsibility. And it just seems to me not only the the, the moral hazard that you're describing, but also um, it's just not the highest, best use of scarce tax dollars. You have these problems that you created at your laboratory level among our 50 laboratories. You know, you're going to have to figure those out on your own. We'll provide disaster relief for COVID-19, but that's where it's going to be limited in scope because they're just higher, better uses for the limited tax dollars. And even as we're spending untold trillions, there still is a limit. That's right. Keep in mind, people, you know, ultimately tax revenues are paid for by tax paying citizens who are producers. And why, you know, why should people in, you know, productive people in Idaho and Louisiana and Florida pay to bail out pensioners, state pensioners in Illinois? There's just no reason for it, particularly given the tragedy that the economy is now suffering because of the coronavirus. Predicting some of the uh, results of this uh, pandemic and the response to it, uh, a lot of discussion about the migration, particularly in a census year for the country that was happening already uh, with uh, states like Texas and Florida looking to pick up congressional seats, states like Illinois and California, and New York looking to lose them. Will this speed it even more? You know, as Eric Schmidt from uh, Google, former CEO of Google, saying the other day, you know, we don't need to be in a super city anymore in order to participate in the digital economy. And while that's true, I was interested in this write-up from the Mercatus Center, which where you uh, co-direct uh, the program I mentioned on the American economy, analysis of, of research about the macroeconomic benefits of big cities. We talk a lot about the costs and uh, how those costs are socialized, which is a problem, and that's a fair discussion to have, but also the, the macroeconomic benefits that big cities provide as well. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, just for consumption purposes, people are good to average. We like Most people like to be around other people. Uh, and, and cities cities provide that. Mm-hmm. Uh, histories, history proves when, as soon as you let people leave the farm, they go to the cities. Most people don't like to be remote, which is one reason why this lockdown, by the way, is, is, is so mentally stressing. Uh, uh, but while it's true that this modern technology does allow uh, more remote work, there's still something about being in with a bunch of people, these ideas as the as the science writer Matt Ridley quickly, ideas have sex. Ideas mate with each other and they create new and more creative ideas. Cities are incubators of this great mixing of in- creative individuals with, with their ideas. Yes, there are problems. Of course, there are problems. There are problems with any kind of social arrangement. But big cities are amazing uh, uh, sources of human creativity. And and I would hope that uh, uh, we, we – that they continue to thrive uh, after this COVID-19 thing has passed. Yeah, and maybe, maybe, I don't know in which big city, because I think the biggest city controlled by a Republican, not that that's the end-all be-all, but but at least you have, generally speaking, a little bit more um, sense about the importance of the productive sector as opposed to the existence of the public sector. Um, But it'd be nice to see them focus on the big things they could do to improve people's lives with respect to, you know, congestion and 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 public safety in places like Chicago and uh, get out of all the other businesses that they try to be in that they're not very good at. If anybody could actually right size a city government, I I think, you know, that that person could could go on to a great, uh, great fame and import. He is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and contributor to Cafe Hayek, uh, the blog there, CafeHayek.com. Don, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. My great pleasure, Dan. Take care.
listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We talked uh, earlier in the hour to uh, gentlemen involved in thinking about how to reform the healthcare system and the response to something like a COVID-19 going forward, particularly as it relates to the government. How about uh, the response just in terms of organically from within the medical profession, rethinking on what the medical profession has become because of the undue influence and involvement of big government, big insurance companies too, that operate like big government. Don't forget they were largely the authors of the backdoor takeover of the healthcare system. I'm talking about Obamacare, right? Because it was competition elimination for them. Um, so that rent sinking behavior is, is uh, no more attractive than the command control behavior of the government. An example of what I mean, Dr. Timothy Wong, he is a, a Pittsburgh primary care doctor, and he's got a different way of doing it after doing it the old way. Video that's uh, I got from Mark Perry over at Carpe Diem that's really good. Here, thinking about... Um, individual action to move towards market-based reforms that are better for patients in terms of access, outcome, and cost. I realized the system was broken, so much to the point that I was part of the problem of contributing to that broken system. Dr. Timothy Wong doesn't take any insurance in his practice and charges most of his patients $35 for a consultation. We would always have to fight the insurance companies getting something a patient required. We're talking about having to do extra work just to get a diabetic the insulin they need, having to get a patient a life-sustaining medication, and having to give her samples just so that she doesn't end up in the hospital again. Healthcare is the only industry, I think, that we really turn customers away. We could do better as providers. We can buck the system and change it. After working at a hospital for four years, Dr. Wong decided to quit his job and open his own primary care clinic in Pittsburgh. He's one of a growing number of doctors who are looking for ways to cut the insurance companies out. Not taking insurance is a defiance because it's against the traditional way we do things. I love the observations about the healthcare system, too. It reminds me of uh, Steve Forbes' observations, the only industry where uh, nobody knows what the price is of a service. And uh, you can't get a price. Well, how much does this cost? We have no idea. At least those not operating under the Dr. Wong model. How much does something cost? You can't get it. And uh, more customers is what's called a crisis. In other sectors, that's called good news. Case study on the Wong approach. There's no receptionist, nurse, or assistant. Patients sign in on an iPad and wait until he calls them in. I was at work, put my finger in the mixer, and it's... Smashed. Brent drove over an hour to get to the eye health clinic. I've dealt with this kind of injury before. I've paid thousands of dollars, even with my insurance. Last time was actually $750 out of pocket for two stitches. The most Dr. Wong says he's charged a patient? $55. That doesn't include things like testing or medication but he works with patients to find affordable options. And he also, of course, says, yeah, of course, have a catastrophic policy for catastrophic injuries. He's a primary care guy. He's also an innovator. This is Dan Brown. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Contact tracing, one of those magic phrases that uh, public health professionals say, then politicians just rinse and repeat. Here's how we're going to stop the spread. Contact tracing, contact tracing. This is what the next phase is in fighting COVID-19. We're going to contact trace. It's very simple. We um, identify those who are infected, and then we just figure out all the people they've come in contact with over a defined period of time, and then we uh, test those people, and then we uh, you know, make sure that they're salted away and so on and so forth, and then we stop the spread. It's just that simple. Uh, Mark Cuban says we need to you know, hire a bunch of people to be contact tracers. You have governors and states throughout the nation talking about how many people they're hiring to be contact tracers and how they've been contact tracing for some time now, although they don't have a lot in way of results to determine how effective it is, much less any real disclosure of methodology to suggest how accurate it may be. And of course, uh, in most places, a dutiful slash dulled press doesn't ask the questions. They say, well, that sounds good. That sounds easy. Is it easy? Uh, What are you willing to do? This is where Otto von Bismarck comes in. Yes, the German chancellor. Politics being the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best. For example, in Washington state, will you do this? Will you acquiesce to attending a uh, patronizing a restaurant in Washington state where Washington state restaurants are now required to keep a log of each dine in customer to facilitate contact tracing during phase two of the state's COVID-19 reopening plans? As part of the requirement, the log must be maintained for 30 days, must include the customer's telephone number and email address and what time they came in, according to state officials. This is all about saving lives, said Governor Jay Inslee. Of course it is. I'm not saying that contact tracing is a bad idea. I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated and there are trade-offs than it's being advertised. And there are trade-offs that are not being advertised. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Keith Humphreys. He's a professor of psychiatry at Stanford. He's an affiliated faculty member at Stanford Law and the Stanford Neurosciences Institute and contributor to The Washington Post. He served as a drug policy advisor in both the Bush and Obama White Houses and currently advises many state and national governments on how scientific evidence can inform policies regarding addiction and other psychiatric disorders. I wish he had more politicians under his care. Professor Humphreys, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Really happy to be here. Well, you uh, sparked my interest and my uh, sort of antagonistic posture, as you heard, towards some of the pronouncements in the area of contact tracing by this Twitter thread in which you asked a lot of good questions that are of the trade-off orientation when people are just running around saying, well, South Korea, Germany have good contact tracing programs. We'll just model that in America and that'll be the end of it. And it's not the end of it because we, we have dissimilar cultures. We have a constitution that they don't have. We have individual rights that people cherish in a way that may be different in other countries. And you start to raise all these questions sort of in the direction of there's the utopian ideal and then there's what's possible. So it may be a good idea, but let's think a little bit Uh, more uh, robustly about implementation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are are spending a lot of time on the technical side of this, and there are enormous challenges there. You know, how many people do you need? Where do the tests have to be given? Who's going to give them? How do you record all the data? And that's all important. But you also need something else that, in my opinion, is not getting enough attention, which is you need political consent. 
And it's not clear to me that we have that in a lot of the country. I mean, I live in Palo Alto, but I am from West Virginia, and I spend a lot of time in both places. I love both places. But in going back and forth, what I see is there are very deep disagreements in the country about how big should the government be, how much right does it have to health information, how much do we trust it. And these programs require consent. A lot of expansion, I mean, you gave the example from Washington State, a lot of expansion of government into people's lives, and I'm not convinced that a lot of people are going to agree to that. Well, to your point, a Washington Post-University of Maryland poll finds nearly three in five Americans say they are either unable or unwilling to use the infection alert system under development by Google and Apple, and partly is, you know, they don't trust Google and Apple. They don't trust uh, big tech any more than they trust big government. Well, that becomes a real problem because as one of the questions you raised in your Twitter thread is if people don't want to volunteer to do it, then what do you do? Right. And I think there'll be a lot of resistance actually from both left and right on that sort of thing. Yeah. So that, you know, you could, some, some of these situations could result in confrontations between police and people in low-income and minority communities. Um, some of them could result in confrontations in, in other areas where, uh, you know, you see conservatives uh, uh, would, would be more at the vanguard of protesting constraints. You know, that's part of our nation. And by the way, it, I cherish the fact that we care about our privacy and our individual rights. It's important dialogue. We've always had this going back really from the time of Declaration of Independence. But it's you know central to America to worry about individual liberty. And in this case, I think that may stop us from being able to do this program. And not that I'm against, obviously, stopping the virus. I'm all for it. I just am not confident that this approach will be adopted widely enough for it to work. Yeah. And you um, also said something that I agree with. And I think probably more people agree with is what's going to happen than are willing to say so publicly because there's been such criticism directed toward Sweden. But you tweeted out, America is more or less going to end up with a Swedish coronavirus policy, not because we universally agree to consciously choose it, but because we couldn't universally agree and never have about fundamental issues surrounding politics and health. And in part, the reason is, I think, not that we ever would because there's different philosophical approaches that people bring to the table. But there's also the a lack of full disclosure at the outset. And there's the lack of bringing people along. And when you perpetrate a fraud on me at the outset, then I'm unwilling to listen to how you're going to correct it subsequently. Well, one of the things that's striking about our country as a whole is there's just not a lot of trust. I was looking the other day, Pew Foundation asked people, how many of you uh, expect the government to do the right thing all the time or most of the time? And about only 17% of Americans agree with that. Mm -hmm. They also distrust, you mentioned they distrust tech companies. They're scared of, you know, when I put something on my phone, where does it go? Who has access to it? There's distrust at local level. And I also think there's a certain amount of suspicion in America just of each other. And a lot of this depends on us being watchful of each other, but relying on each other and, you know, relying on our neighbors to not go out when they're infected. And it's, it's sad to me, you know, because, uh, you know, we are all Americans and it would be good to have a cohesive, trusting society. But that is not the reality that we're in right now. And I don't want to sound cold, but you just have to be realistic about what a culture can and can't accomplish. And I think in light of where we are, as I mentioned, I think the Swedish policy is pretty much what we'll do. I mean, some places will be tighter for sure, but just on balance, given that we all interact with each other and infection spreads from place to place, I see that as our future.
just because I don't get a chance to talk to too many psychiatrists without having to pay them, um, I wanted <laughs> wanted to get your reaction to something um, a regular on our show uh, said uh, a couple of months ago, uh, wrote a couple of months ago, and that's Theodore Dalrymple, a retired uh, prison psychiatrist across the pond in the UK. He talked about uh, fear versus the thrill of fear, essentially. And the subset of Americans that are apocalyptic when it comes to COVID-19 outbreak or apocalyptic when it comes to the discussion of climate change, there's a sense that there's this sort of this thrill of fear when there's no real fear. I'm not saying there's no fear with COVID-19, and I'm not saying there's no fear with respect to climatology, but it's the idea I'm going to adopt something where just by doing something simple and relatively not risky, like wearing a mask or social distancing, I'm saving the world and I'm a good person and I'm a hero. I assess my contribution in an outsized way. I mean, do you you get where I'm going? Is is there a group of people or is that a certain particular mindset that is uh, prevalent and problematic? Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack there. You made multiple, I think, important observations. So I do think that anxiety is through the roof about all kinds of things. So definitely about the virus, definitely about death, also definitely about uh, government. I mean, if, we, if, we, if you talk to some people who are protesting, they're also terribly fearful as well, just to fear, they're fearful of different things. And we, we do not do our best thinking when uh, we are fearful. And we do sometimes get obsessed with small gestures that we can do because that's the only place where it gives us some sense of control when really, you know, these, these things are being uh, influenced by forces beyond our control. Um, and, and you, you know, another question is, you know, this, the signaling aspect, you know, do people do things in part to be considered a good person by others? I think that's true. Uh, you know, I, I expect that's probably pretty deeply encoded in our, our species. It's just a question to me of when is that good and when is that bad? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know I, try, I try to treat my neighbors with respect. Um, I do that because I think it's the right thing to do. But it, is, it also is nice to me to know that they would say, hey, you know, that guy's a good neighbor. And, uh, you know, that, that's part of the social process where we kind of, you know, the hive mind among ourselves decides what's right and what's wrong and what's legitimate for me to expect from others and what is not. And that's a very complicated process in a diverse country with over 300 million people in it. He is Keith Humphreys, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, affiliated faculty member at Stanford Law and the Stanford Neurosciences Institute, and a contributor to The Washington Post. Professor Humphreys, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care now. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump yesterday uh, responding to the comments that uh, Dr. Fauci had made during his testimony on the Hill before Senate Health Committee uh, on uh, Tuesday, that would be, uh, saying this. Look, he wants to play all sides of the equation. Well, I was, surprised, I was surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's just to me, it's not an acceptable answer especially when it comes to schools. Uh, He's talking specifically about uh, Fauci's 
the perception, and I think this was more reporting than it was reality, the perception that he is opposed to the reopening of schools in the fall. He expressed concerns. He suggested what uh, the science is. He suggested what some of the downsides are. He also, under uh, a back and forth from Senator Rand Paul, uh, reminded people, as did Rand Paul, uh, the limited scope of Fauci's expertise, and uh, he provides recommendations, and then the actual policymakers, the people elected, make the policy decisions. Right now, we're pleased to be joined by J. Ron Smith again. He is the deputy assistant to the president and deputy director for uh, deputy director of the Office of American Innovation. J. Ron Smith, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, so um, one of the uh, points that uh, you've made recently in terms of a communique from from your office there, the Office of American Innovation, and has been made from the uh, dais as well by President Trump and other officials, is the the efforts the administration is undertaking as part of the holistic response, specifically targeting uh, communities in urban centers, communities that suffer from economic blight, specific populations that are being disproportionately impacted because, frankly, they have a disproportionate percentage of uh, comorbidities and other challenges. Uh, speak a little bit to what the administration is doing. Sure. So um, the president has already had an infrastructure that existed. Um, in 2018, he signed an executive order that created the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council. And that council was tasked with helping to revitalize the most distressed communities across the country um, by leveraging opportunity zones. Um, about uh, three weeks ago, the president announced that he would have the council, which is chaired by Secretary Carson, uh, renew its efforts and focus on the recovery of our most distressed communities from COVID. And since then, the team has broken up into three different work streams, one on economic development and entrepreneurship, another on community empowerment, which is focused on public health, and then the last one on education and workforce. And so since that council's uh, um, coming together, um, we've put about $2 billion uh, into community health centers, um, I'll also have uh, executed about $60 billion worth of um, uh, carve-out funding for um, entrepreneurship and um, minority-owned businesses, um, which, which, which is helping uh, these institutions uh, weather the storm. And so we're continuing to be active um, by figuring out the best way to work with localities to help empower the most distressed communities. Can, can I um, uh, just make this point and get to your reaction you know, the, the, the focus on um, minority communities, the description of them as underserved communities, they're disproportionately impacted by uh, COVID-19. Actually, uh, Tony Fauci had, had uh, tackled this at a previous White House briefing saying, look, we, we, we've got a disparity in life expectancy. We've known about four generations. This is not new. And of course, because you have a higher incidence of diseases like diabetes in, say, the black community, you're going to have a higher incidence of mortality in those communities. That that's a that's a systemic issue that the country has to deal with that extends well beyond uh, COVID-19. And it just seems to me that um, that w the way we talk about this is not quite the whole picture underserved communities, distressed communities, they haven't been underserved or distressed because of lack of government spending in those communities. They're, they're, they're underserved or distressed by private sector businesses. They're underserved and distressed because they haven't had quality access to quality schools that provide them 
the opportunity to earn an education that can put them on a path to being successful entrepreneurs. And, and so, I mean, it just seems to me that it's a reminder that the recovery really comes through the private sector. You know, government can facilitate, government can provide disaster relief, government can fill the gaps that state and local government isn't filling in this time of crisis. But I wish it would extend the conversation would extend out to be a little bit broader about what we have and haven't been doing for generations in these neighborhoods and communities that make them more vulnerable today during this pandemic. Dan, I think you're exactly right. It's all about a whole of America approach with revitalizing and helping our, our most distressed communities recover um, because every locality is different. Uh, rather, you're talking about rural parts um, of the country and, and believe and if you go to certain states like Mississippi and South Carolina, um, those rural areas are um, uh, this is the majority rural African-American neighborhoods um, versus Detroit. And so having a um, holistic, a whole of America approach uh, would, would, in, would, would encourage us to figure out what's the local solution to local problems and creating an ecosystem. And that's what this council is really all about. Um, we're, we're constantly talking to a number of different localities and trying to figure out what's the strategy, how can we partner with the private sector, how can we bring back industry, how can we um, create more access through partnerships um, with the private sector, with the nonprofits, with the churches, because with a whole America approach, we can really revitalize and help this country recover really quick. The other thing, too, is interesting, just in terms of economic vitality leads to um, healthy living. Um, I mean, that's really the disparity we're talking about. Um, That's exactly right. And so Will Riley, who's a African-American professor of poli-sci at Kentucky State University, historically a black college, he's done some number crunching. And frankly, when you control for income, there is no disparity between black and white. Um, but th- that's the important point. So you start with a disproportionate uh, uh, spread in income among people, uh, among black versus white, otherwise similarly situated. So the income disparity drives the health disparity, the vulnerability disparity. And I think those dots need to be connected for the American people. That's exactly right. And that's what the president has really been focused on is uh, giving every American a chance at the American dream. Um, that's why jobs is, is, a, is a strong focus for this president and a return and a recovery in any community will be figuring out how we can bring manufacturing and, and the high, higher paid, high, higher paying jobs back to those communities, because there's certainly a correlation between health and wealth, which is why we have a council with 18 different agencies that cover all different types of um, segments so that we can take a holistic approach towards um, rebuilding these communities. He is J. Ron Smith, Deputy Assistant to the President, Deputy Director of the Office of American Innovation. J. Ron Smith, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care. Listen up, Dan Prof Show listeners. For a limited time only, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off No Safe Spaces. No Safe Spaces, of course, is the number one political documentary of 2019. You've been hearing me discuss for weeks. Take advantage of this downtime that you have at least many of you have, to uh, to check it out. Dennis Prager, our friend and my colleague, as well as Adam Carolla, produced this uh, documentary on how the left is chilling free speech in this country on social media platforms, on college campuses, obviously in Hollywood. It's not on Amazon Prime. It's not on Hulu. It's not on Netflix. It's at nosafespaces.com. That's where you find it. Check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Make sure to use the code, the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off and watch it as many times as you want until May 31st. Life's been good.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker is a good example of being the bad example. And when you juxtapose uh, the invocation of the use of police to um, exact uh, a law enforcement action against somebody violating a shelter-in-place order at the same time as you're releasing prisoners in Moss from the state's prisons, you get some people uh, more riled up than they already are. Listen to what Pritzker said, and then we'll contrast it with what he did. What other enforcement mechanisms are you considering and have you ruled out sending in state police? Well, not just uh, federal funds that we're talking about. As I just said, the businesses that ignore the executive orders, that ignore the law, um, will be held accountable by our Department of Professional uh, Regulation uh, and will be held accountable by any licensing body, Liquor Commission, Liquor Control Commission, and others. So uh, scramble the state police, uh, scramble the regulatory agencies that can make doing business near impossible at the same time since march one governor pritzker uh, had uh, in, in conjunction with the illinois department of corrections have released four thousand inmates through commutations or released by the department of corrections for individuals that were at or near the end of their sentences 64 of those individuals released were convicted murderers uh, in addition to other violent felons convicted felons and uh, the data in prisons in terms of COVID outbreaks and lethality continue to be a bit confounding, too, uh, so as to inform our discussion as to in the lives versus lives, public safety slash public health uh, consideration, what makes the most sense? These mass releases or uh, the continued incarceration, uh, particularly for those who are violent? You know, we're well past in major cities the idea that we're just releasing nonviolent offenders. We're well past that in places like Chicago and San Francisco and Philadelphia and elsewhere. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Brent Orell. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has written about incarceration. Brett, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot for having me. So I know the uh, order of the day, and this has some uh, bipartisan support. Uh, it certainly did prior to the outbreak is uh, ending mass incarceration, alternative sentencing, criminal justice reform, all of these uh, catchphrases for rethinking how we do uh, how we meet out punishment uh, with respect to people who break the law. Um but it's one thing to go. It's one thing to talk about uh, right uh, kind of rethinking mass incarceration, quote unquote. It's another thing to suggest that mass release during a pandemic is the remedy for mass incarceration prior to the pandemic. And it seems to be we're swinging from maybe one end of the spectrum very quickly to the other without much consideration. Yeah, I uh I think it's really important to keep these two things clear in our own minds. There, there is a move nationally to look at whether we're incarcerating too many people. If we are, who are those people? Where should, you know, what, what alternatives should we be thinking about for people who don't uh, really require um, incarceration in order to be successfully monitored? And we need to keep in mind in that, in that bucket of discussion that we're, uh, 
but incarceration is an extremely expensive way to um, to monitor and control. Um, and uh, so, I think there's a good argument to be made that we need to um, be more conservative, as, you, as if you will, with use of incarceration. Um, uh, we, we've got so many people behind bars far more than any other country. Um, and so, so that's, that's one thing, that's one sort of topic for debate on the, on the COVID issue. We're really talking about, I think something else. And that's, um, the fact that prisons, um, because of the challenges with social distancing, um, within prisons are, are generating a tremendous number of, uh, COVID infections. That's a problem for the people in the prison, obviously. It's a problem for the people who work in the prison um, who are being exposed to those infections as well. Uh, and it's a problem when those employees are going back and forth between the prison and the community um, because that then uh, creates opportunity for spread um, of COVID from prisoners and prisons to people in the community via um, via these workers, guards and other staff. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I want to pick it up right there when we come back uh, too, and just um, um, include some some data just to have a deeper discussion about some of the trade offs here. Uh, certainly, the issues you're mentioning, and then some of the issues with um, with releasing uh, prisoners in Moss. More with Brent Oral, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Brent Worrell. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has uh, written about the interlocking risks of mass incarceration in a, a piece at thehill.com. The and just picking up our discussion, you're talking about uh, how we have several examples across the country of the COVID-19 virus spreading very quickly among prison populations and then including the prison staff and the guards that work there and the risk of then exacerbating the spread when those employees go back home, go back out into public. Um, that is one issue. Tyler Cohen wrote about this about a week ago in his blog at Marginal Revolution, a George Mason University professor, looking at the fatality rates. It is true that you've had these outbreaks and it spreads very quickly, but it's also true that the fatality rates are much lower in these prisons where you've had significant spread than, say, in generally speaking, in um, states that have more cases even, sorry, that have fewer cases even. So in L.A. County uh, this week, we saw the sheriff reporting on how prisoners are trying to get COVID-19 because they see this as a path for release. Right. If I'm looking at five to 10 years, but I can I'm young and healthy, which a lot of prison inmates are, generally speaking, I can get out and get my freedom by just uh, having uh, something that I may never even really feel in terms of uh, significant health impacts. So how you think about making those decisions with a relatively low fatality rate and then the incentives you're presenting to prisoners to get infected. 
that's a really interesting issue. The thing to bear in mind is that we have in a number of different kinds of congregate settings around the country, a much higher rate of infection and spread. So it's nursing homes, it's meatpacking facilities and prisons, which are really the three top generators of infections. And in the case of nursing homes, make up a really substantial portion of the deaths. So we're look, trying to look at this from kind of a population level issue. How do we slow down the spread of COVID? And if you've got hot spots in the country, in institutional settings or point sources of infection, then you really need to focus on getting those under control because of the impact that it has on people that are around those facilities and those institutions. So from that standpoint, prisons have to be dealt with not necessarily because of what's going on with the prisoners themselves. I think that's a serious concern, but because of the way that it becomes a generator for infection. So the question is, what do you do about it? How do you structure an effort to reduce density inside prisons that deals with the public safety issue that you're pointing to, which is a significant one, a serious challenge. And that's what the focus of the piece that I wrote in Hill, that I wrote with Grant Dewey, who's, uh, who leads research at the university, I'm sorry, the Minnesota State Corrections System, is how do we judge public safety risks among those that might be considered for release? And he has been on the leading edge of developing automated, Grant has been on the leading edge of creating automated risk assessments that can really give us a very good handle on who's likely to commit another crime. And my view of this, or our view of this, is that what we need to do is a cross-sectional analysis of the population. Who's at greatest risk of contracting and potentially having serious health consequences or even death? who is close to being eligible for release and who can be released with relative safety with the understanding that they're going to continue to be monitored in other ways after they get into the community. So we need to be smart about this. It isn't just a matter of opening the gates and sending everybody out. It's a matter of really looking closely at who's at risk from a health standpoint and then who presents a risk to the community. You mentioned earlier the problem of violent offenses, and that's always what draws people's attention. And what's interesting about the data on criminal offenses is that the rate of reoffense among people who have violent offenses is much, much lower than people who have nonviolent or committed nonviolent offenses. That seems to be a product of the fact that often violent offenses are crimes of passion that people do them, uh, they assault, they commit an assault or they commit a murder or they commit another violent offense and they have, it's a one-time thing that was contingent upon particular circumstances. But you also get longer, um, you also you also are facing longer sentences, so you're perhaps provided with more disincentive to commit that crime again. Yeah, it's a little unclear as to, I, I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that longer sentences actually deter those kinds of offenses. They can deter some kinds of crime, I think, but in terms of the violent offenses, which I said are often crimes of passion, yeah. uh, the heat of the moment that lead to those, people aren't don't stop in those situations to make a calculus about whether they're going to get a long sentence or a short sentence. They're just really angry. 
and they they take a step that they often then later regret. That that may be true, but uh, but but, but there's also a, a that may be true, but there's also a value issue here too, right? And and there's mm-hmm. two two prongs of the justice system: restorative right. and retributive. And so the idea that uh, I got 15 years for committing a crime of passion, but because of a pandemic, I get to get out after five, you know, that there's a value issue that needs to be discussed there, too. Sure. I don't disagree with that. But again, I would recommend, I should say, taking a population level uh, look at this and say, what do we need? We have to we have to balance these things. We have to be able to to accept that there are trade-offs, that we want to reduce the spread of this disease. And so we need to screen people for risk, both health and safety risk, and decide then based on that screening, who can be let out and who can be monitored in the community by probation and parole rather than being in prison. I don't think anybody's talking about, again, opening the doors and sending out people and just forgetting about them. Uh, it's a question of what other kinds of monitoring can we use, electronic, pathway houses, what what are the resources uh, that we have at our disposal to um, continue to monitor people, uh, especially if they're being released before the end of their sentence. Even, you know, people who get out at the end of their sentence have to be monitored, um, right. typically. Right. Um, so it's, re- it's really a monitoring question of how we do it in a smart way that can help us deal with these interlo- what we call these interlocking risks um, that we're trying to address. He is Brent Orrell. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll uh, tweet out his piece at Dan Prof Show on uh, those interlocking risks that he mentioned with respect to mass incarceration. Brent, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We mentioned earlier in the hour in our discussion with um, Professor Humphreys about this Washington state order requiring all restaurants to uh, maintain 30 days worth of logs on whoever patronizes their restaurant, name, rank, serial number, time of uh, of uh, visiting the restaurant. Uh, how about this in terms of a restaurant approach uh, for uh, the new normal in, um, in uh, eating out? And this is a, a three-star uh, Michelin-rated restaurant. Um in uh, Washington, Virginia. The Inn at Little Washington has a novel concept, serving parties of mannequins. The uh, Inn at Little Washington will seat well-dressed mannequins in its grand dining room when the establishment reopens on May 29th. The mannequins will be seated alongside human diners who will fill half the Inn's capacity or less per state reopening rules. Uh, The... uh, (laughs) the chef oh boy i've always had a thing for mannequins they never complain about anything and you can have lots of fun dressing them up okay patrick o'connell um who is by the way a james beard lifetime achievement award winner and probably a serial killer no i'm kidding i don't know but the comment about mannequins was fun until it wasn't uh although 
you know, it is reminiscent of Steve Martin and Charles Grodin in The Lonely Guy, the party that featured Manigan to make it look like, you know, there was activity there. But that was out of loneliness, not a requirement out of social distancing. Although the idea of sitting across a mannequin for dinner is not um, completely without merit. It's certainly uh, perhaps more entertaining, uh, better conversationalist than some of the dates I've been on. Hi, oh, but um, um, I mean, this this is we're really getting into some bizarre areas, though. I don't know about this. This smacks of like a, a Twilight Zone Black Mirror episode more than it does a night out with uh, family or friends, doesn't it? Sitting with mannequins. Uh, it'll be f- be fun. Could be weird. Uh, you could uh, bring out um, mannequin fetishes like apparently Chef Patrick O'Connell at uh, the Inn at Little Washington has. Oh, boy. Okay, on to uh, more uplifting matters. Uh, I'm talking about Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, which is a documentary presenting convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. It's the work product of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who uh, traveled the world over to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, at home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. The other movies in the series include The Moses Controversy and The Red Sea Miracle. Watch Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us for another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.